You ready? Okay, let's pray. We'll get started. Father, once again, we are grateful for the, uh, the freedom to study this Bible. And we're actually grateful that we have it. Christians around the world don't even have um, a completed canon where we have something we can wrestle with and talk about and pray through and gives us so much guidance. Thank you for blessing this river uh, as a country, as a people. Thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. <coughs> okay. Sorry about last week. I, if most of, for most of my life, I have taught for two hours in a church context. In fact, up until this year, it's been two hours. I always taught two hours. And uh, I decided to shorten it. And, uh, but my body clock is all based on two hours. <laughs> so that's why I was eight fifteen. It's like, oh, wait a minute. I'm supposed to be done. <laughs> so I'll try to remember that tonight. Let's go back and talk about Psalms. But first, um, tonight's all wisdom literature. Uh, first, tell me something that <coughs> stands out to you in this class that you've learned, a surprise, something that you've been reminded of, something that um, is new for you, uh, something you disagree with. In his dealings with, in his dealings with the redeemed. Uh, most of Israel is not redeemed. Most of Israel's history, they're filled with rebellious people. Oh, yeah? Right. Yeah, he's definitely punitive toward the entire nation. But in the midst of all these, we haven't even got to the prophets yet, but in the midst of all the prophets, they're delivering this real strong messages as they unfold over the century or over the decades and end centuries, the message gets stronger and stronger and stronger. But uh, in the middle of all of them, there's hope. And God is addressing them, the, the remnant, those that are going to pay attention to it. So even when you get into Isaiah and you have all those, what, 13 chapters of, of uh, criticism and rebuke against all the nations, well, the nations never heard that. Or even give those prophecies and rebukes for the benefit of the nations to repent, to give for the benefit of the redeemed to show them that I'm your God and this is what's going to happen to them. So, yeah, he certainly didn't mind um, going after um, the rebellious. He's going for it. Same as new. It's the same as in the new. Redeemed. So, regenerated, brought to life, given life. I even believe that they were given the Spirit. Um, I don't think that's a completely New Testament phenomenon. I think the, the giving of spiritual gifts is a New Testament phenomenon, but not the giving of the Spirit. So, um, uh, so a person that's regenerated or redeemed is still re redeemed. They wouldn't have been called Christians. They weren't called that until post-resurrection. And, uh, and even then, it was a derogatory term, which kind of stuck. They never, the early church never dreamed of becoming something different. They were part of the Jewish community and they worshiped at the Jewish temples and the Jewish synagogues. And they didn't, they didn't branch off and start a church. They, they kept doing what they did all along. Their whole goal was to help their Jewish neighbors and relatives come to know the truth about the Messiah. And um, it was the Jews who kicked them out, ultimately. So they weren't even trying to start a new religion. So they're called the way, they're called followers of Jesus. 
you know, they began to call them Christians, which is a derogatory term, um, and it stuck. So we, we kind of use that term today. They're called believers. So they have a whole variety of terms because they, they, they weren't a movement. They weren't, they weren't trying to start something new. Their whole life was. It's like when we're in here and we're all worshiping and studying and all that, and we figure out something that we've come to believe. We go, oh, we didn't believe that before. So then we just start talking about it. We don't say, well, we discovered something new. See you guys later. We're out of here. It doesn't work that way. So the, you'll see them always, especially in the first year, uh, always in the temples and teaching and talking about it, discussing it with people. And uh, They had, as far as we can tell, they had no intention of starting a new movement. They, that kind of happened because the Jews said so. And in AD, in AD hmm, 49, I'm losing my, forgetting that story. When Claudius, Emperor Claudius kicked everybody out, he kicked the Jews, and he got tired of the Jews and, and the, the Jews and the Christians, um, the tension that was being created in Rome because of them. So he didn't recognize them as a separate religion. He just kicked them all out. You're all, this whole Jewish thing, you guys get out of here. Go, go to some other country, you know. I don't want you. <laughs> get your act together. And so in order to practice a religion, it had to be registered with the state. And so um, Christianity was uh, authorized under the registration of Jewish religion. Last slide. It's interesting. I uh, had a conversation with. Um, we're getting ready to. Uh, our next elder meeting is this coming Tuesday, and I think we're ready to. We've been working on a f- uh, theology of gender and sexuality. And um, went through the elders. So we've been working on it for six or eight months. Went through the elders' first draft, then it went through uh, former elders and those who were on the elder retreat, and then it went back through the elders. And so I don't have more comments now to incorporate. So I think we're really ready to hand it out to the congregation, make it available. So I've been asked a series of questions by people as they as they get to read it and all that. It is technical. It's a little long. It's like nine pages. Um, and, uh, you know, I got asked, is it is it trying to drive us to a conclusion? And I said, no. I said, no, it's not. A good theology doesn't drive you to a conclusion. A good theology creates the framework to have the discussion in. And so what we tried to do with this theology was eliminate several of the older, more standard arguments against women being in leadership, such as the creation order. That's one, you know. And so we, we dealt with that one in this. So I had somebody ask me, um, <coughs> are we reacting to culture? And I said, absolutely. And, uh, and they were <laughs> kind of surprised by that. We're not supposed to react to culture. What do you mean we're not supposed to react to culture? This book, from beginning to end, is an in, is an is a discussion, an interaction, and a response to culture from beginning to end. Everywhere you turn, God took what was happening in culture as the starting point, and then began to redeem it. So you look at Deuteronomy, for example, the, out, the, the laying out of Deuteronomy in the form of the law code. Well, every nation around them had that, so He used that style. In fact, we're not going to do it tonight, but all the wisdom literature, every one of these books, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, we have ample evidence that all the nations around them had the same kind of book, same language, same types of sayings even. We would have put them up there and showed them to you. So 
So the Bible from beginning to end is God engaging culture where culture is and then working to bring redemption either through stopping something or making something better, either one. So (laughs) this person laughed and he said, I've been a Christian for 40 years. You're the first pastor to say that. Most pastors say, you know, we're not supposed to react to culture. Of course we're supposed to react to culture. We should integrate with culture all the way through everything that we do. Uh, to do, I mean, this is our home. These are our these are our people right here. We live with them. We 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 go to the store with them. We buy gas. We have dinner with them. And so, Christianity is designed not to avoid culture, but to integrate into culture in a life giving way. Sometimes that means we put our foot down and say, "Whoa, we can't do that." And sometimes it means, "Wow, you got a good idea. We totally missed it. Let's jump for it and let's make it better." So. So we are in dialogue with culture all the time. So when I get asked, you know, is, is, our, is our decision to look at women in response to culture? Absolutely it is, you know, and I'm grateful. I'm grateful. You know, my granddad believed uh, in his generation that women were easily deceived and couldn't be trusted in leadership. I'm so thankful that culture's overturned that, you know. One in church that overturned it, by the way, just so you know. It was culture that came along and said, you guys are idiots. You know what we said? Yeah, you're right, we're idiots. <laughs> That's kind of my summation of that period of time in my life. But so, so culture is, we are in dialogue <coughs> with, you think of all the other discussion partners that we have. Philosophy, is that a cultural? It is, isn't it? Anthropology, that's a cultural discussion. Sociology. That is a cultural discussion. Archaeology, right? Paleontology. You look at all the subjects, you know, then that's not even counting the sciences. You know, you look at physics and all of that and, and the various disciplines within that. And, and we're, all, we're all trying to figure out truth and reality and make sense of it. And if we just stick our heads in the sand, then we have no impact in the world. So we, are, we should be in dialogue with culture all the time. Everything that... And when we when they come up with something, we say, you know what, you're right. We should celebrate that and tell them thank you because they brought something to the table that we missed. If you look at the transitions and world philosophies from the from 2000 years ago on, what you'll find, sadly, is the church is always the last group. We dig our heels in and then we don't want to change. Right. We just don't want to. Who wants to go back to the medieval period? Who tried to keep us in the medieval period? The church. Who wants to go back to the rational or the Enlightenment period? Who tried to keep us in the Enlightenment period? The church, right? So now we're going from modernism to postmodernism. Who's trying to keep us in the modern period? The church. Are we just, boy, we love to dig our heels. And we, th- we have this perspective. Once we got it figured out, we got a corner on the truth. You know what? 2,000 years of her- church history shows us that nobody has a corner on the truth. It's building slowly over time. That's why slavery didn't get dealt with till the 19th century. Because the church hadn't figured that out yet. Okay, now we figured it out. So I, t- I like to look down the road, say 300 years, and I think, all right, when, <coughs> when sociologists and anthropologists take a look at, at uh, the 21st century and the role of the church, what are they going to see? You know, where did we dig our heels in? I think, honestly, gender studies is one of them, is one of those areas. So I don't know where we developed this idea. It sounds good that we should never react to culture because the entire Bible is a reaction to culture. Integration and reaction and being in dialogue with culture. Sometimes we say, nope, can't do that. Other times we say, wow, thank you. What a great idea. Let's make it better and let's do it.
that's great. Yeah, that's great. Any other thoughts, questions, comments, side remarks? You're learning stuff through the class? Is it helpful to kind of unfold it in a little more, a little more chronological sequence and put it within the context of what's happening? Good. Well, the wisdom literature is really fun literature. And what we've discovered, uh, what we know, is that uh, every culture has wisdom literature. Every culture. Psalms, those are songs. They capture the character of a, of a group, people group. Uh, we have our songs, right, that capture us. The church is a subgroup of culture. We have our subgroup of songs, um, hymns and things like that. Some of you aren't old enough to remember the, the worship wars that we went through. My goodness, you know. We fought over whether we should sing praise songs in church. Divided over that. It's like the world sometimes has to just look at us and decide how to live. <coughs> over the things that we fight over. And so m music is a part of establishing culture part of establishing identity, like art is and things of like that. And so what did the Protestant church do after the Protestant Reformation? We pretty much got rid of all icons. So you walk into the standard Protestant church today, they may have one thing hanging on the wall. I mean, that's a pretty deeply embedded cultural consciousness that we don't want icons, right? Which made sense to me until I lived, until I lived in Germany and started visiting cathedrals. And it's like, what were we thinking? thinking you know the entire structure of the cathedral from beginning to end top to bottom side to side the different colors that are chosen are all designed to teach the biblical story and you know why in the middle ages the, the peasants couldn't hear they couldn't understand latin they didn't have bibles and the priest spoke in latin so what do you do when you've been working six days and you come to mass even the mass the entire mass is designed to teach the gospel i mean i studied the mass in music school i was a music major and uh, music is so integrated into the Mass. And that's when I learned that the Mass is designed to teach the Gospel. So the cathedral, from every which way you can look at, is designed to teach the Gospel. So that when the peasant comes in from working hard, can't understand what the priest is saying. So what does he do? He daydreams and he's looking at the stories in order of the Bible. What happened? And the layout and everything. It's, it's like, are we crazy? <laughs> you know? So I love our people that... I love coming in not knowing what it's going to look like, but knowing it's going to be different all the time. So now I'm on a quest because if you pay attention, they start building it. You know, so like Lent started something small and it began to grow each week. So I'd walk in each week to see what they added to figure it out. And I wish we had more stuff. I wish we had stained glass windows. I wish we had all those things because it'd be, it, would, it would contribute through artwork and beauty to the gospel message. We get these crazy ideas. And uh, it sounded good in my, you know, 40 years ago as a young Christian. It sounded really good. Now I'm looking back thinking, what was I thinking? You know, I drank the Kool-Aid. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. So um, it's fun to put things back in order. Wisdom literature is where you collect sayings and you put them together. And it, you collect the sayings of the wise, those that have lived lives and been around the block. I mean, that's a, that's a, that right there is a wisdom saying in ours. I've said to our elders, you guys, are, you guys have been around the, the block 47 times. I don't have to teach you the Bible. I'm not going to. You've been around the block. What does that mean when I say you've been around the block 47 times? What does that mean? 
Yeah, you've got experience, and you've learned from the experience. You're wiser. So if we started collecting all of our sayings that we're used to, putting them in a book, we'd have the wisdom literature that describe our culture. We catch, you know, we catch our fairy tales and our, our fables and put them all together in the, mora- the morals of the stories that go with them that you learned as a kid. That's, that would be a different type of wisdom literature. We collect poetry, if you're into poetry, uh, people that, that, that describe things in incredible ways with very few words and put those together. That's another form of wisdom literature. So the wisdom literature in the Bible is really important because it describes the character of the, um, a character of the nation. And the character, the character of the nation of that part of the nation that followed and worshipped God. So if we didn't have the wisdom literature, say, for instance, the Psalms, if all we had was the historical narrative, First Samuel, First Chronicles, then, then we'd know David made mistakes, right? We'd know that God forgave him. We'd know he's a man after God's own heart. we know he murdered, committed adultery, and a bunch of other things. But what we wouldn't know is what happened on the inside of a man. We don't get that until we get to the Psalms when he begins to cry out to the Lord. And so what he did was, you get his insecurities, you get his sorrows, you get his anger, you get all of that laid out in the Psalms from David. And you find out, man, he's just like I am. Okay, he may have been the the top of the pile as far as leadership goes, he's no different than I am. He's a man with a lot of insecurities. He's a man with a lot of sorrows, a lot of anger at what people have done. You know, he's a a man that cries out, where are you, God? (laughs) Where'd you go to? You know? How come you left me alone here? So we wouldn't have that side, the human side, if we didn't have the Psalms. By the way, we, uh, we've been talking. I think we've decided on uh, this summer in the amphitheater teaching through the Psalms, especially the Psalms that find their expression or fulfillment in the New Testament so we can continue to connect the dots. Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 3, Psalm 22, Psalm 8, Psalm 45, Psalm 110, all those Psalms that begin to lay a, a foundation, a groundwork for the coming Messiah. So we're going to we're gonna take our 13 weeks and look at Psalms that find their expression or fulfillment in the New Testament. And uh, that'll be fun. Yeah, I know we do, right. Yeah, we violate our core rule, right? Get rid of all the... <laughs> have the ultimate icons. We sure do, don't we? And uh, guess what? They were those icons that we look at every day out there, every weekend out there, those were a danger to Israel because they kept going to worship the mountains. They kept worshiping the God of the mountains, the God of the lake, the God of the sea, the God of the sun, the God of the moon, the God of the stars, the God of, you know. So when we read the Psalms, we find language in here filled with all kinds of creation language. And it's kind of double entendres because back, double meanings, because when the original readers, the Israelites are hearing them, they're not picturing creation, sun, moon, star, and all that. They're picturing God. Because what the surrounding nations did was everything was a God. And so you would see a mountain, there's a God. There's Egypt, Egypt, the sun god, Ra. That was one of their main gods, Ra. He's the sun. So when they saw the sun, they saw a God. When they saw a mountain, they saw a God. So when he starts to talk about his, his creative power over the sun and over the stars and over the planets and all of that, what he's talking about, has created his power over the gods. That's how the Israelites would have interpreted this. Now, today, we live in a post-enlightenment scientific world, and we see sun, mountain, and because we're not superstitious in the technical sense like they were. But those were all gods. So these language of creation all throughout here is language of God's power over the gods of the other nations. Does that make sense? 
So uh, sometimes when you read this, stop. When you read something about moon and stars and sun and all that, pause and say, wait a minute, let's think about creation. Let's think like the Israelites did. Okay, so he's saying he's a God over this other God. He's more powerful than this other God. So the wisdom literature is just filled with this language, very emotive, very poetic, very uh, um, metaphorical language that is difficult for us to make sense of, you know? Your teeth are like a flock of goats, Song of Solomon. Really? You know? <laughs> when we were in Germany, our, we were, I was helping them understand some of these metaphors, so the guys got together and they created their own uh, Song of Solomon, you know? Your, um, your eyes are like stars, there's space behind them. <laughs> your teeth are like pedals, bicycle pedals. <laughs> It was so funny. I only heard it once, and I remember it 25 years later, you know. <laughs> and we don't understand it because we would never use that language today. But it's very poetic language if you lived back then. You didn't have TVs. You didn't have all that. You know, the only things you had were what was around you in the desert, you know. So you, how, do you describe, how do you describe your wife's beauty when all you have is goats and sheep and mountains and rocks, right? How do you do that? They found ways to do it. So it becomes fun. Well, let's jump into Psalms a little bit. We started talking about this last week. Um, Psalm 1 and 2 are like an introduction. They Psalm 1 requires the reader to associate either with the way of the righteous or the way of the wicked. So I'm just going to read it to you. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. So there's a metaphor that we can kind of grasp, but we don't really understand the significance of how important this is when you live in a desert. Right? I mean, this is like a blessing of blessings of blessings. Here is what he's describing. Whose leaf does not wither, where whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They're like chaff. Wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. This is an introduction to the Psalms. This is basically an invitation. Do you want to walk through this door into this world? Well, what's the wicked person going to say? I'm not interested. They never walk through the door. Well, that's the same in our culture. We just don't use this language. Okay? Who comes and engages the one true God in worship? Those that, that have the Lord has attracted the wicked person is not going to walk into church and do that. It's not going to happen. So Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 serve like an introduction to invite them into uh, the Lord. Once you get past Psalm 1, um, their first encounter with the Lord is about his anointed one. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. So if you're a brand new Christian, your first question is, Who's the anointed one? Saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. So all of a sudden, now that we've walked through the introduction, we've taken a step into Psalms, what do we start learning? How big God is. We start meeting God. He laughs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. He says, I have installed my king on Zion my holy mountain. Who's your king? Who is that? Well, in the immediate sense, they would say David. 
right? And then later on, as much as they may have hated some of the kings, they'd say, this king, this time what we do too. What does Peter say in First Peter 2? He says, uh, uh, honor the king, the emperor, the supreme authority. That's what we're supposed to do. We shouldn't be walking around criticizing our president. We should be honoring our president and praying that God gives him wisdom and changes his path if it doesn't agree with God. That's what we should be doing. We should always speak well. It's okay to say I disagree with our president, but we should never show dishonor. And one of the things that just is turning my stomach through this whole election campaign is the way they are just slamming uh, each other and the current administration. It's like, wait a minute now. You know, this administration is not 100% evil. Nobody is. Uh, maybe they've done things I disagree with. They have. But they still deserve my respect and my prayers and my, my honor because the Lord is the one that made the decision to put them there. It wasn't me. It was the Lord. So you see this language. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Psalm 2 becomes very important in Hebrews that this is relating to Jesus. So as you walk into the psalm, Psalm 1 opens the door and invites you in. As you step in to the literature of the psalms, first thing you learn is how big God is and how wonderful His Son is. Is that You see that? So Psalm 1 and 2 are the intro. They just open the door. Psalm 146, when you get to the very end, serve as a fitting conclusion. Uh, Psalm 146 all the way through the end. These psalms are all talking about praising God. And when you get to the very last psalm, praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His acts of power. Praise Him for His surpassing greatness. Praise Him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise Him with the harp and the lyre. Praise Him with timbrel and dancing. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with a clash of cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So you start on this journey through the psalms. You walk through the opening. The door gets open, you get invited in, you learn about how big God is, and he starts talking about his son. And then he takes you on this winding journey through sorrow and brokenness and lonely and hap- happy laughter and dancing. And, uh, and, and the Psalms go up and down in their emotions, and we begin to connect once we get inside because we say, you know, that's us. So this is what it's like to serve the Lord. Some days we are very happy, the, the, the joy is overflowing. And some days we're on our knees in tears saying, God, what just happened? And some days we're wondering, where are you? You know, why have you forsaken me? That kind of stuff. That language is in there. God, where did you go? Why am I alone? And so as we read their journey of these psalms, these authors, the psalms, we begin to say, this is my life. This describes it right here. These psalms, they do. So it's a conclusion. A doxology is one leaves the psalms. So I think psalms are written in a particular order. Um I, I don't think the order they came is necessarily the order they were written. I think they were put here. I think editors put them in this order because there's five, uh, I gave you a handout last week, but there's five books probably connecting with the five books of the Pentateuch, the five chapters of the Pentateuch. So they're modeling it after that. And every one of the books concludes with a doxology, praising God. So as you're walking through the room number one or chapter number one or book number one, you get to the end, you pause and you say, Praise the Lord. Wow. How great he is that in spite of our sinfulness, you know, Psalm 51, David sinned with Bathsheba. Uh, I mean, that's a heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching. You know, he's begging the Lord, don't take your spirit from me. That's what happened with Saul. Don't. I was wrong. And, he's, and you can connect with that when you've made a mistake. 
So at the end, you know, Psalm 141 is the last one, and you pause and you say, praise the Lord for his goodness. Okay, and you jump into the next chapter, and you go to the next, and you go that way. The, um, let's say a word about um, the theology of the Psalms. Since these Psalms were uh, the prayers and praises of Israel, they represent the core theology of the nation. So the central theme is the reign, the sovereign reign of God, the one true God. That's the central theme over his creation, not just Israel, but over the entire world. Whether you have sinned and are experiencing some level of discipline with the Lord, whether you are on the mountaintop because life has gone so well, whether he has blessed you beyond your richest blessing, whether he's taken away the most important person for you, it doesn't matter. He is God and he is sovereign. That's the core theology. So it becomes important. As we read the Psalms, we hear of God as creator, redeemer, protector, sustainer, provider, guide, and more. Um, the predominant means of talking about God is through metaphor and simile. So we then we hear that God is our shepherd, our king, our warrior, our mother, our father, our teacher, our judge, and more. Because this is poetic language, right? We could explain something. We could say God is our shepherd. And that brings to mind a whole bunch of information. Or we could talk about how God leads us because we need him and we don't know how to take care of ourselves. And we could explain that all. You could say God is our shepherd and you get it. That's the beauty of Lutheran literature. It just captures so much in a short period of time. Types of psalms. There are several types. And uh, by the way, uh, different scholars have different ways of, of saying these different types. Uh, what, what is important for us is that the different types of psalms teach us different things. So we have hymns, for example. Hymns, psalms are hymns of praise and thanksgiving to God for who he is and what he has done. They're songs of joy. They're intended for those occasions when life is going well. Several of the psalms, as you work your way through, are their psalms of joy or hymns. We have Thanksgiving hymns. These are a little different. They're similar to hymns, but they cite an earlier lament that God stepped into and answered. I was here, and God answered it, and now I'm here. Okay? I mean, isn't that a part of normal life in the church? This is where I was. I went through bankruptcy, and God rescued me, and now I'm thanking him. Well, that's a Thanksgiving psalm. You have, um, you have wisdom psalms. They provide general observations on life, especially our relationship with God. They share the language, concepts, and concerns of the rest of the wisdom literature, and you can compare these to Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, things of that nature. You have the royal psalms, psalms that focus on the king as the son of David as God's special instrument to rule his people. Uh, and they focus on God as king. I just read Psalm 2. I was reading that. That's an example of a, a royal psalm. You have lament psalms. I'm going to take you through one of those in just a minute. Psalms of lament, they lament the condition that you find yourself in, whether or not you got yourself into the mess. It could have been somebody else that did it to you, or you could have done it yourself. But still, you're lamenting where you are. They're songs of disorientation because you you are no longer feeling blessed. And you know when you when you sense the Lord's blessing has changed in your life, you become disoriented, don't you? Uh, and something happens that feels tragic to you. You lose your way. And Psalm three is I mean a Psalm the lament psalms are about those who are in distress. Um, the all of these psalms are pointing toward they're highlighting, they're emphasizing that 
hope. They're always moving us forward, which points us to the New Testament. So the Messianic and Royal Psalms find their fulfillment in Jesus. The Lament Psalms find their fulfillment in our movement into the New Covenant with the Holy Spirit. God gave us the Holy Spirit as a cover, uh, as a comforter, a counselor, a teacher, somebody to guide us. And so these Psalms, while they capture our life as we move into the New Testament, we also begin to see that God has begun to address the issues behind them. So I want to take you through Psalm 3 in particular. Psalm 3 is a unique, well, it's not a unique psalm, it's a lament psalm, but just to give you an illustration of what you can do when you stop and read your psalms carefully. All right, this, the superscription to Psalm 3, uh, by the way, was probably these are not probably not part of the original. They're not inspired. They're added later on. But somebody early on figured out what they were for. It says it's a psalm of David, so David is credited with authorship, when he fled from his son Absalom. All right, the story um, is David, and he's in trouble, and he cries out to God for help. Let's just read it. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. That's their quote. God will not deliver him. That's what the people are saying. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head high. I call to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. Um, lie, I lie down and I sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Psalm 3. All right. So let's remind ourselves what the story is of Absalom. This comes from 2 Samuel chapters 12 through 19. There's a seven-chapter uh, long history of David sliding into, into the abyss of sin, if you will. In chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, David commits adultery with Bathsheba, which leads to the further sin of murder, lying, and covering up. As the king, he should have never, well, nobody should have done it, but definitely not as the king, because nobody could stand up to it. It would have cost him. Chapter 13, we find the rape of, of uh, an incest of Tamar by her stepbrother, half-brother, Amnon. Okay? You may remember the story. Amnon had a thing for uh, his sister. She was very beautiful. So he pretends to be sick and asks for her to come bring him food. So she does, and he locks the bedroom and door and rapes her. When he's raping her, she says, please don't do this sexual thing. Ask my father. They, had, they shared the same father, David. Ask my father, David, and he'll give me to you as a wife. He doesn't listen to her at first. As is true of rapists, as soon as he's done raping her, he's done with her. He kicks her out. So as he's kicking her out, uh, she says, please don't do this second detestable thing. Ask my father, David, and he'll give me to you as a wife. And he doesn't. Throws her out, slams the door, locks it. Okay, the city of David at this time is only about six acres. Maybe eight. So if, if you have a study Bible and you look at the map of the city of David at the height of David's glory, it wasn't very big. It's the size of El Parque. Not even that big. Okay? That's all this. We think of these towns as huge. They're not huge. All right? No secrets in a small town. She's standing outside the door on the street, and uh, she knows that her life will never be the same. She can't go backwards. Because as she's no longer a virgin, so she can no longer marry under the law. That was true of all the nations around Israel, by the way. They all had that same provision. So if she says nothing, 
she's going to be found out on her wedding day because on the wedding day there were two tests of his virginity. One is blood on the cheeks. So when uh, what would happen is the husband would pay uh, the bride price for the bride, okay? And what if he decides to come back and, and challenge the father? Your wife, my wife wasn't a virgin. You lied to me. I want my money back. So what they did is they established a custom where the next day they would take the sheet with the blood on it and give it to the dad, and he'd lock it away for safekeeping for the rest of life. <coughs> so if the man ever accused the woman of not being a virgin, he could pull the sheet out and say, yeah, really? Here it is. Okay, that was test number one. Test number two was if if the husband ever suspected his wife of either not being a virgin or cheating on him, he could, uh, how would you ever know? So he could take her down to the temple, to the priest, and say, my wife's been cheating on me. And so the, the priest would go through this uh, exercise, part of which he would sweep dust off the floor, put it in water, have her drink a bitter water. If her stomach swelled up, that was God's way of saying, I will show you if your wives are unfaithful. And if she was faithful, then it wouldn't swell up. So, so Tamar knew she could not pass either of those tests from now on. She's no longer married. Okay? The number one way that they established honor for women was to marry them and have children with them. And so she can no longer do that. All right. So Amnon's not going to defend her. What should have happened is David heard about it, and he should have walked right over to Amnon's house, and he said, I know what you did to my daughter. So under the law, you're going to marry her. You're going to restore her honor in front of all of our friends and neighbors here. If you don't, guess what? He's going to drag you out in the streets and stone you to your face. It's not going to look too hilarious. But David didn't do that. So Tamar is only left with one option. She kills her seed. That's a statement that I'm no longer a virgin. So Absalom, her brother, comes and gets her and takes her into his house and takes care of her where she lives out her days. She never knew it. It's a tragic, tragic story, especially when there are there was answers in the law on how could she, her honor could be restored. So two years go by, and uh, Absalom murders his brother Amnon. He waits two years for David to act, and David doesn't do it. So David commits adultery, then he commits murder. He covers it up. His daughter gets raped. He doesn't step in, step in and defend her. Absalom, the brother, waits two years, and then he murders Amnon. He does what David should have done, basically, except Absalom gets in trouble. Chapter 14, three years have now gone by, and uh, Absalom has been exiled because of the murder. And so in chapter 14, three years go by before D David allows Absalom to return, but he's not allowed to see his face. So Absalom is kept in, in uh, seclusion. There's no forgiveness, no restoration, no reunion. Now remember, David is the king representing God to the people. His job is to forgive. His job is to rebuild broken relationships, to take, that's what the law is all about. And the king's primary job is to live out holiness in the lives of people, but he's not doing it with his own son. There's no reunion, no restoration, no forgiveness. So two more years go by before David receives his son Absalom, but by now it's too late. You know what Absalom's been doing the whole time? He's been out helping people. He's been out mediating for people in the city. He is at the he's sitting out in the street helping people make decisions, judging between them. And so the people begin to trust Absalom. Remember, no secrets in a small town. They know what their king is doing. They can't hide it. They know what he's doing, and they know what he's not doing. He has sinned. We've now got five or six years have gone by, and our king's not repented. He's not relented. He's not, he's not living out his faith, the law, in a righteous way that Absalom is. 
So Absalom stole the hearts of the people when happy. Chapter 15 records Absalom stealing the hearts of the people. The very people who lived day in and day out in Jerusalem with David are now loyal to Absalom. Jerusalem at this point, as I said, was about six or eight acres. Everybody knew what was happening. So David is told, Absalom has stole the hearts of the people. What that means is you have no more power. The people have turned against you. They are no longer loyal to you. So David has to escape with his life. He flees. He flees from Jerusalem. And then uh, in... in uh, Second Samuel 15, I think, it's important to understand his history before we jump into Psalm 3. So Second Samuel 15, verse 30. Um, David continued, he's been kicked out of Jerusalem, he runs for his life, he's got his uh, 30 mighty men with him, uh, minus Uriah. David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as, his, as he went. His head was covered. He was barefoot. All the people that went with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. David had been told um, Ahithophel was among the conspirators with Absalom. So David prayed, Lord, turn his counsel into fruition. When he reached the summit where the people used to worship God, and he goes on with the story. So you picture David going up. He's, he's gone down to Kidron Valley up the other val- up the other side of the valley, and he's pictured as barefoot. He's, he's dressed now in mourning. He's weeping. Uh, it's his own fault. It's his own fault. This is a seven-year slide of David uh, taking advantage of his his kinship, if you will. This is the story when David fled from his son Absalom. Now listen to the words. Lord, how many are my enemies? How many rise up against me? Who are his enemies? Here it is his own kingdom the people that he was anointed to love and care for that's who his enemies are if you didn't know the backstory who would you think his enemies were Canaanites Philistines right it's not it's his own people that's who's turned against him you see how the story begins to shift by taking the time to research this now all of a sudden this is our story I don't have Canaanites going against me but I do have people that hate me. You know, I've had a person here in the church tell me, I wish you'd never come. I'm just counting the days till you leave. I pray every day that God would take you away. It's my own people that I'm tasked to love, right? No lie, I had a person at coffee tell me that. This is the, all of a sudden now, this is my story. Does that make sense? How the psalm changes? Okay. So, the structure of the psalm forms what we call a chiasm. Chiasm, that's a way of, of addressing a certain literary form. It comes from the Greek letter chi, which looks like the letter X in English language. So, picture the X, okay? So, the beginning, the first and the last part are connected. The, se- the next to the first and the next to the last are connected and you work your way down to the center and the center is the key where that, that literary paragraph is driving to. They use chiasm, that's one of the many structures they use, 
can help you remember because they're an oral society. They didn't have Bibles and iPhones and all that to walk around with. So the way they would remember things is by creating these structures so that you could easily remember them. And so this is a chiasm. So, for instance, in verses 1 and 2, you have a cry, okay, a cry for help. And then in verse uh, in 7, you have another cry, a prayer to Yahweh and a closing declaration. In, uh, in 3 and 4, he's crying out to God himself and praying to him. And that's what's happening in 7. So the psalm begins to work its way to the center. And the center is in 5 and 6 where there's an expression of trust. He, and that's where he's really driving. In spite of the lament, he's going to trust the Lord. He's going to live out his faith even though he's the one that did it. So let's work our way through it and see what's happening. Um, the introductory cry, he cries out that his enemies were against him, but we now know that those were the people that he was trusting. So, so the first thing we learn is it's okay to cry out to the Lord. That's the first thing. That's what he does. And it's okay to recognize that your own people are betraying you. You know, they turned against you. That's a bitter, bitter place to be. Then in verses 3 and 4, and look at what they're saying of him, by the way. Many are saying to me, verse 2, quote, God will not deliver him. God has left him. Well, they had just seen that happen with Saul a number of years before. All right? What happened when Saul sinned against God? What did Saul do? What did God do? Took his spirit from Saul and gave it to David. He took the anointing from Saul and passed it to David. So they've watched their king for seven years living a life of sin. So now they've turned against him and say, See, God's not going to deliver him either. He didn't do it. So the people, you got to have respect for the people here, even though they're enemies. They're, they're living out what they have seen happen already. Happened with Saul. So the king is supposed to represent God to us, and he's not doing it. So God's no longer with him. So David cries out in verse 3, But you, Lord, are a shield around me. You're my glory. You're the one who lifts my head. So the first thing he does is he reflects on the fact that God is a protector. There's no one else to trust. You find yourself in that position? I hear you talk to about some of these things. Right? I'm not about to walk around telling you who said that. I, I'm stuck. You know? God, you're the only one I can have this conversation with. I've had that conversation with the Lord many times over the years. When I've been betrayed, when I've been hurt, when I find myself in sin, I, you know, I, I get myself in sin and I say, Lord, I'm not going to bring dishonor to your name. Uh, I can't I can't go tell this to my friends what I did. You're the only one who understands. You're the only one I can turn to. You're the only one I can turn to that I know for a fact will love me and welcome me and show me grace. Everyone else, I don't know if they will or not. You know, I don't know how you're going to respond, but I know how God's going to respond. And so this describes my life. When I find myself in trouble, I know at this stage of life, I can turn to the Lord and say, Lord, I... I, I really screwed up. I can't tell anybody about it. I'm alone, and I'm hurting, and uh, you're the only one I can trust. You're the only one I know that, that knows what to do about it as well. Um. Ultimately, yes, but we're looking at them in their original context, and they wouldn't have known that. Okay, So we're actually hearing the story of the king. The, this is a glimpse in, into the, the backstory of the king himself when he's the one that betrayed his people and they turned against him. 
you see him beginning to trust the Lord. Lord, I have really screwed up. I have really done something that shouldn't have happened. And uh, I can't trust anybody. You're the only one. You're my protector. You're my shield, if you will. You're my glory. You're the one who lifts my head. So he cries out to David. Um, and this whole concept of lifting the head is a metaphor in this language of restoring him to his rightful place. Because as king, here's what happened to him. Somebody comes along, it's presented to him, who's committed a crime or broken the law or whatever, and he comes and he bows before the king. The king has two choices, off with your head. Or with his sword, he can lift the guy's head. Lifting his head means he's going to be restored back to his position. So when he says, God, you're the only one that can lift my head, what he's saying is, no one else can restore me back to where I was. It's really your decision. And so he's expressing confidence and trust in his restoration to kingship, in God's willing to, willingness to glorify him, in God's understanding and protection. And this tells us, this gives us a glimpse that this is the God that we serve. No matter how big a mess you find yourself in, you can always go to God. And you don't have to be afraid. No language in here about I'm sorry. He just turns to the Lord and says, Lord, I, I need your help. I'm in trouble. I'm in real trouble. And he expresses confidence. So, so the second principle we get is that we can trust the Lord. We really can. Now, that's easy to say academically, but, but when you find yourself in sin, do you stop and turn to the Lord? I remember working with the young soldiers in Germany who, who was really struggling a lot with adultery. It, it just, I mean, it's an addictive kind of thing. And he was working with several, uh, several wives um, around the army post and, and as God began to convict him, how do you break that? And I said, well, let me give you a suggestion. The next time that you find yourself in bed with a, a woman, a wife, um, at the earliest moment when you can, when you become aware, because the Lord will, will provoke you, I believe that, at that second, stop and say, God, I'm sorry for what's happening right now. You're the only one I can trust to show me grace. And so he started doing that. It's really fun. To w- it was fun to watch him begin to work his way out of this addiction. He just started to develop it as a habit. And so how do you take this from an academic discussion to reality? And the reality is when you sin and you find yourself in a mess, shame causes you to run away from the Lord. What this psalm is teaching you is just the opposite. Run to the Lord. He's the one that will always understand. He's the one that will always show grace. And he's the one that understands how to help you in the midst of this mess, this confusion. So he says, I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. So he's letting you know in the midst of this terrible, terrible thing he's done and the predicament he's found himself in, he's called out to the Lord. And then you have, I I lie down and I sleep and I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear though tens of thousands uh, assail me on every side. So this here's his expression of trust. He has, he has gone to the Lord with confidence, and he's able to lay down and sleep. It's really what that's saying. He's Asam able to lay down and rest. He slept through a very troubled night because he knew the Lord's present, uh, presence, and he knew that no matter how big the army was, the army is not really the threat. No matter how big the group of people is. That's not the threat. It's really not the threat. So 
which we haven't gotten to that yet, but there's a principle, right? Do not criticize President Obama. Don't do it. You, you get a glimpse right here of he is God's anointed, whether I like it or not. And David is right. That's why David never raised a hand against Saul. Even though he, was, he had the capacity, he had the ability to kill him on several occasions, he refused. He said, I'm not going to do it. When God is ready, he'll put me in, and it's going to be God's doing. If I do it, then it's not God's doing. And so he's actually, when we get to that part of the psalm, he's actually fulfilling the biblical Lord's punish them because they're doing this. They should have never turned. No matter how bad I am, they shouldn't have done this. Does that make sense? So we, we, we treat these passages lightly. Uh, honor the king. Show respect to the emperor. Pray for the, those in authority, Paul says. Submit to them. Right? Submit to those in authority. And every, every one of those passages over Nero was the emperor. These are, we shouldn't take these lightly. These really give us a perspective of how God views things. Because God says, Paul says, God says through Paul, no one is placed in authority except through God. He establishes his own authority. No one. So you may not like the person in authority, but they are there because God decided to put them there. The, the individual. Yeah. So people come to me and say, doesn't God care about our country? Yeah, he cares so much about our country that he made it up on his own shoulder. What did he do with Israel? He deported them. That's how much he loved them. He said, I love you so much, I'm going to kick you out of the land so you learn a lesson. And 50 years later, I'll bring you back. So does he care about our country? Absolutely he does, passionately. But we, we assume that means he's going to bless it. But you know what? If we continue to turn away from him, his love doesn't change, but his actions will. <laughs> so, so respect what they're doing. You don't have to agree with them, but you have to show honor and respect. So David's request here fits with theology. The theology of who God has anointed. It's just that what makes it a little quirky is that it's the king who sinned saying, you know, smash their feet because they, they did this to me. Uh, but can you see how working through the psalm really begins to give it a different perspective? And when you realize that he's in the mess he's in, he created it, but the mess he's in is with his own people, that makes it now personal. It makes it my story. It makes it your story. You've been through it at work. You've been through it maybe with your family. You've been through it somewhere. I mean, um, Sennacherib was God's chosen king to utterly, completely destroy and ravage the northern kingdom. They raped, they pillaged, they burned, they dashed the kids off the cliff against the... Okay? Anointed means chosen. That's what it means. So don't get too hung up on the differences. And then Paul talks about that in Romans 13, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. 
Consequently, whoever rebels against authority is rebelling against God. I mean, this language is clear. There's no ambiguity here. So, so just my advice to you is do not rail on our leaders. Pray for them and show them honor. I mean, that's the clear message all the way through, and you see it with David's song right here. That's why he can request that, because they are just as wrong as he is. And, uh, and his own life under Saul is a picture of what it means to live under abuse, because Saul tried to kill him over and over again. And he refused to take action. He showed nothing but honor and respect every step of the way, which makes him the ideal king. So Psalm 3, you can turn right around and say, so God, punish him for this, because they're just as wrong as I am. And as king, he can ask that, because his responsibility is for the people. And what's best for the people? Punish them for this. They need this. So because we have freedom of speech in our country, we get it confused. Don't ever use your freedom of speech to criticize those in authority. Um, he allows them to rebel, but uh, um, that doesn't make it right. One of the big ethical questions is the own founding of our country. And as Americans, we say it was the just thing to do. But as a Christian, I'd say, don't take it away. Did God bless it? Sure he did. Oh, yeah, the Old, Old Testament's full of people rebelling and killing their kings and emperors. And uh, every step of the way, the lost man knows it was God's blessing. So it's okay to stand up to government and say, if you tell me to disobey scripture, now I'm not going to do that. I'm glad I don't live in China. If they said you have to abort your number three, I'm going to say no. As Peter and John said, you tell us, do we obey you or do we obey God? But that's different. Okay, my country aborts babies, but they haven't told me to abort a baby. So I allow that to lay in my little pants, how to deal with it. So my advice is just to be very careful how you criticize. Because Paul makes the case here, understand, if you begin to criticize or rebel against the government, you are rebelling against God himself because it was his choice to do that so just a thought what i want to illustrate to you was in psalm 3 was an example of what happens when you take the time to understand the lament psalm you find yourself in the story is what happens it becomes your story because it's repeated over and over and over again all of us have people that we have trusted who have turned against us whether it's through our own folly or through their sinfulness either one and so the lament psalm allows us, it gives us a model of what it means in the middle of that, not to be overcome with anxiety, but to turn back to the Lord and say, God, I'm going to trust you, and um, therefore I can sleep, lay down to sleep at night. And I told the staff today, one of the, you know, this is my first pastorate, you know that, most of you know that. I've, had, I've been in the academic world before this, and one of the unexpected things was, I know so much about so many people in the church because I have coffee with them all the time. And when I stand up there to preach, sometimes sometimes it just feels uh, so overwhelming. I stand up there and I think, I know that that person is sick and you're a person. 
when I know that this person is about to divorce, and I know what this person did over here, and I know what that person did back there, because they've told me, right? And so I get up there, and I think, you know, coming into this, I thought it's important to really get to the core message of what this passage is about. And now I get up there, and I say, no, you know what's really important? is to craft this message in a way that all those people take one step closer to the Lord. I don't know how the Lord does it. It's about all I can take some Sundays. Uh, I come home after church on Sunday, quite honestly. I walk in. I just, I don't even want to just walk in and go down and crash for two hours. Uh, I didn't realize how much information would weigh you down about the brokenness of people and the sinfulness of people. And so Psalm 3 allows you it's just one of the lament psalms. They all do the same thing. It allows you to say, you can turn to the Lord and say, I'm going to find my confidence in you and I'm going to sleep and let you take care of it. <laughs> really, that's what I think. I'm going to sleep, Lord, and let you deal with it. <laughs> yeah, when I had coffee with a person who... Uh, said we have I had heard about someone else in the church who was sinning and yep you knew about it <laughs> I do know about it and um, but they're but they're not continuing in their sin mm, yeah they they actually are right now and uh, I'm, we're, I'm spending time with them on this and so this person said well I need to know why you haven't dealt with it from the pulpit Okay, what, what would you want me to say from the pulpit? Well, you need to get up there and tell, uh, tell the congregation how sinful this type of behavior is that they're doing. I said, okay, let me make sure I understand your philosophy here. So when I become aware of somebody in our church that's living a life of sin, I didn't bother to say, but I could have, which is just about everybody that I know of in our church. But when I become aware of somebody living a life of sin, you think that I should use the pulpit the power of the pulpit to address that, right? And this person said, absolutely. I said, okay, let's start with you. What's the sin you're struggling with? And I'll make sure I talk about it this Sunday. That's what I said. Dead silence. I said, it sounds kind of absurd when I turn it around and put a mirror up, isn't it? Can you imagine that philosophy? You know, it's, it, it kind of makes sense when you have a church where people don't feel the safety to talk about it. But the more safety people feel, the more honest they become. And the more honest they become, the more weary I get. I mean, that's the truth. I'm okay with it. I'm not complaining. It's an honorable position to be in, to know what I know. But the more the safety they feel, the more sin starts to float to the surface. It's already there. It's just becoming more obvious. So can you imagine adopting that philosophy? My goodness, every Sunday we'd be dealing with sin, <laughs> you know? So I, I think the purpose of the pulpit is to, is to major on the majors and keep people moving toward closer to the Lord. That's what redemption is, one step. Just take one step, okay? If you could just take one step, that would be a major accomplishment. And we try to get them to the uh, end of perfection right away. Stop that. Well, you know what? A whole bunch of this sin is really addictive type disorders. It doesn't just stop because you flip a switch. It can't. I wish it would, but it doesn't happen that way. So my ministry in their lives is let's just take one step. How about we just take one step? Okay. How'd that go? All right, let's take another step. Let's get you some more help or whatever it is. So 
it sounds good in an academic world to say you find out about sin, just get up there and deal with it. But it's like you don't know what I you don't see what I see <laughs> when I'm up here. I can't do that. Yeah, I told Nancy, that <laughs> I said, you know, we have enough saved now that I just came back from Haiti. There's one section on the North Island where the beaches are beautiful and the wealthy people have have these secluded homes with high walls around them. Can't get in. And I said, we have enough money now that we could go to Haiti and buy one of those and live there. And she said, when I die, you just go right ahead. <laughs> she knows I wouldn't last two weeks. I couldn't stand not being engaged with people. But man, sometimes I just want to run, hide someplace. And, you know, the staff feels it. They have the same. The staff is safe now. We were just joking. I, I showed them today that experience, and they're all going, wow. You know, they're just not the ones up front looking out across and seeing what I see. They're, they're aware of it, but they're not looking in their eyes every Sunday, if you will. And that's the goal, is the elders the same, is that people should be able to come here and say, my life is a mess. And we should say, <laughs> well, right, welcome to the messy club. <laughs> What's that? You're not alone. Welcome to humanity. <laughs> you know, the question isn't whether people are in sin. Of course they are. That's an, the norm. The question is, what do you do? And, and shame keeps them isolated. It keeps them from turning to the Lord and it keeps them from telling somebody. I mean, you know, you can't just walk in and blab. Uh, to people, if you think about it, uh, you you have to be given an invitation for people to open up to you, and that comes usually in the form of friendship. That's kind of one of the implied terms with friendship and relationship is when I engage you in coffee and friendship, what I'm really doing is extending you an invitation, and it's an increasing invitation as you get to know people to be more and more Honest isn't the right word because that implies you're being dishonest. To be more and more transparent uh, about what's really going on behind the scenes, whether it's just the insecurities you're facing in your own p- leadership position. Okay, that's that's an area that you know a lot of our people need to be able to talk about that to somebody. You know, all the way down to I'm sleeping with somebody and I don't know what to do or I'm doing drugs and or I'm getting an, I'm developing an alcohol problem and so it's. So you can't just walk up. If the imagine if the church was so, if so structured that you could just walk up and blab to anybody. You don't want to vomit your mess all over people. So there is a sense in which we bring encouragement to each other, but there has to be a level where people feel the safety to say, "I'm in trouble," or I'm, "I don't know what to do," or "I'm really feeling the anxiety of what's happening in my job or my marriage." Or you've heard me say several times from the pulpit, "If your marriage is in trouble, don't be ashamed." Best marriages get in trouble. Come get help. Well, I got several people that have come forward and said, my marriage is in trouble. Help me. Maybe I should quit saying that. <laughs> so it's a, it's a very worthwhile endeavor 
but it is a wearying one as well. Tim Glasgow asked me recently, he said, when you go on vacation, how many weeks away do you go with home? And I said, well, I take one in the summer. Um, yeah, and then maybe one in the fall. And he said, I want you to start thinking about taking blocks, two or three weeks. And uh, why? And he goes, you don't know. But all the data shows that it's going to take you at least a week to clear your mind before you can start relaxing. So he said, just think about it. So what a great place to be as a church where people can get past the shame and say, all right, I'm listening to you. I'm going to come and be honest. Um, just treat them well when they do because <laughs> you don't want to backfire. Okay, let's talk about Proverbs. Proverbs is the second book in wisdom literature. Um, the basic structure of the beginning of Proverbs uh, personifies wisdom and evil or foolishness. And they're cast as Lady Wisdom and Madame Folly. Madame Folly is a prostitute. So they use the, it's, it's a book written to a young man. And, and the author uses two women as metaphors to help you understand wisdom and foolishness or sinfulness. One's cast as a, a woman of class, of honor, of, uh, excuse me, a lady. And the other one is a prostitute, a harlot, a whore. And so that's how they do it. The Proverbs consolidate Israel's ancient truths all based on experience to help you begin to make sense of what wisdom might look like. Um, the book has something to say about nearly every area of life. So if the Psalms capture the heart of people in a nation, the Proverbs capture the sayings of the nation that brings together that we as a people group have put together these sayings that really define what wisdom looks like in our culture. So you can take the various proverbs, you can group them together according to subject material, and you can form principles by which to understand the topic. In each case, the topic under study is a comparison, a contrast between wisdom and foolishness. So when you put them together, you're seeing two sides being presented. If you go this way, this is what will happen. If you go this way, this is what will happen. Um, it's, it's something that we all do as parents with our children. We don't put a collection together and produce a book, but we do. We use wisdom sayings all the time. Son or daughter, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. We talk about it in terms of consequences. So it's a collection of short sayings or instructions on how to live life well. Um, the genre of Proverbs, let's say just a moment about what is a proverb. It's a succinct and a persuasive saying that's proven true by experience. That's really what it is. It's not an academic saying. It's a real life saying. These things will happen, but it's done in poetic form. The basic value has been proven true by previous generations. The uh, purpose is to encourage the readers and a people group to live righteously and justly before God. So they're terse on purpose. If you think about it, I could say to you, okay, in advance of committing yourself to a course of action, consider your circumstances and options. Or I could say, look before you leap. Right? You remember the one, not the other, and it captures so much in a short, and the Proverbs are organized that way. They're terse, pithy statements 
that are designed to capture a whole wealth of wisdom that we've learned as a people group to experience in one sitting. Let me tell you what a proverb is not. Two things. First of all, they are not promises. Okay? Huh? Yeah, they're not promises. They are general principles of wisdom. In most cases, they will prove to be true, but not in all. The second one is they are not commands. Again, they are general principles to be applied in life. They capture the wisdom of the ages, which has proven to be tried, true, compelling, but not binding. People still have freedom. So the famous Psalm 23.6, train up a child in the way they should go. When they're old, they will not depart from it. You know, there was a whole book written when I was a young dad. Um, this is a promise. You can count on it. And you know what? Your children have freedom of will. They do. If your children ser- learn to live the Lord, learn, learn to serve the Lord faithfully, don't pat yourself on the back too much. Okay? Okay. The Lord had far more impact than that in you. By the same token, you could give your child the best of everything and they turn against the Lord. Don't blame yourself too much. Your children have choice. You know, my uh, I have a cousin who told me many years ago, it always frustrated him that uh, he was in a rock band uh, good enough that they toured the country, actually. And, and he said, and everywhere he went, people kept saying to his mom and dad, well done, well done. He says, it always used to make me mad. He said, you know, I was the one that had the chance to sleep with a woman every night on tour, and I chose not to do that. I was the one that had drugs offered to me every concert, and I chose not to do that. I was the one that, and you see the picture. And he said, why do my parents get all the glory? And I was like, you know, that really shook me up a little bit and woke me up. And Yeah, so your parents turn out well, t- turn to the Lord and turn to humility and say, God, thanks. I, I'm, I'm going to do my part, but it's between you and them. It really is. You and them are going to work it out. I can't do it for them. As I've said to each of my kids, I can't live your life for you. I wish I could. Actually, I don't. <laughs> I can't live my life. When one of my children was in trouble, I just said, you know, I can't. One of my daughters was in trouble. I said, I can't, I can't dictate what type of woman you're going to become. All I can do is give you some advice. But I want to show you th- two pictures to help you make the decision. Here's a picture of your birth mom. This is my second daughter, my second child, who's my oldest daughter. I said, here's, my, here's your birth mom. She's like 15 at the time, my daughter. And I said, uh, she sacrificed her life to bring you into the world. Weren't expecting to have you. Uh, you, were, you were unexpected, but not unwanted. And yes, your mother paid for you with her life. And we knew it. Dr. Close is going to happen. That's what happened. I'm trying to make you feel guilty. I'm trying to give you a sense that here's a woman who sacrificed her life for you to bring you into the world. Chose not to abort you. Here's a picture of your mom who raised you. Yes, she quit her career, sacrificed that, walked away from a career in engineering <coughs> to raise you because she couldn't stand you not her not being there when you were a baby. So she did that. So you have two women as examples. I said, what you become is up to you. I can't control that. I said that to each of my kids. What you become is up to you. My advice to you is look in the mirror every day and just uh, look in the mirror and just in the morning first thing and say, am I becoming what I want to become? Truthfully. So if your children serve the Lord faithfully, just humbly say thank you, Lord. That's all you got to do. Don't take the credit. You know, If your children turn out to be a disaster, just humbly go before the Lord and say, thanks, Lord, for giving me this child. You know what to do with him. <laughs> I'm just going to love him. <laughs> you know what to do with him. 
by the way, I have seven grandchildren, and I just uh, found out recently that uh, number eight and number nine are on the way. Two kids are expecting. <laughs> Told Tim Sealing yesterday, we were skiing. I said, Tim, how is it that you're much older than I am, but you don't have any grandkids? I'm much younger, and I've got nine. And he goes, you know, that's like personally offensive in both directions. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. Oh, my goodness. So the proverb, they are not promises and they are not commands. All right. In the New Testament, um, Christ is the ultimate revelation of God. Hebrews argues that in the opening chapter. John one eighteen. no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten of the true son, he has revealed God. And so that's true. No one has ever seen God and no one ever will. We will always see Jesus. Jesus reveals God to us. So Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. This becomes important when you look at proverbial type language because wisdom all through the Old Testament in Jewish culture and non-Jewish culture was contrasted in two different ways. In the Hellenistic world or the Greek world before that, wisdom was seen in the very abstract sense. They still use metaphorical language to talk about wisdom, but it's very abstract. Um, it, it had nothing to do with living real life. And quite honestly, wisdom was connected to enlightenment, and you would never really achieve enlightenment until you escaped the material confines of the world. That's pretty standard almost every religion, except for Christianity. And um, so Plato taught that when you escape the world through death, you could begin to learn wisdom begin to gain true enlightenment. So it's not something you could really grasp here. Alongside of that, you have the Proverbs written where wisdom is, cons is conceived of in Judaism as very practical. It's what you do in life. It's what we do as a people group, as a community of faith, as God's people. How we live our life then dictates and teaches us wisdom. We learn wisdom that way. When Jesus enters the picture, that whole concept just explodes several places, but it's prominent in the book of Hebrews because in Christianity, wisdom is now found in Jesus. So we look to Jesus as the perfect example of wisdom. So when we talk about being transformed into the image of Christ, that's technical language, that means you, as you follow Jesus, you're becoming more and more human. Okay, you only have two choices. You become more human or less human. No one's static. As you move toward God, uh, move toward Christ, you begin to conform more to his image of what true humanity looks like. As you move away from Christ, you begin to lose that image. Image is not a right, it's a privilege. And so over time, you become less recognizable as a human. So you think of the, the overarching meta examples. Think of Hitler, for example. Would we in any sense describe him as a human based on what he did by the end of the day? He violates just about every area of humanity we can think of. So, no, he becomes less and less human. So, as you move toward the image of Christ, what that means is you're moving towards true humanity. And Christianity is unique among the world religions. That teaches that, that, that you are not static. You're dynamic. You're designed to transform and grow. And that's what's happening. You're becoming more. That's why my whole theology is to get our churches to just take one step, even a half step. I'm excited about that. Okay, let's just take one more step. Let's just keep the process going toward, toward Christ. 
So with Christ, we find wisdom in Christ. And by the way, this is very important in the gender discussion because um, uh, Christ came as a man, but he came as a human. He represents the humanity over males. Otherwise, women couldn't look to Christ and figure out how to, to grow. So Christ is an example of the perfect human. So he never lived into that, the sexual part of the maleness okay, that we live with. So he is the perfect example of what a true human looks like. And so our goal is to follow him. So wisdom is now captured in Christ, and, ca- and Christ captures all of the wisdom of the Proverbs. Everywhere, everything that you see in there, you find fulfilled in Christ. So i got about three minutes. Let me give you an example. I'll talk about speech. When you consolidate all the principles on speech in the Proverbs, and by the way, this is a great way to do it. You can read Proverbs, 31 chapters. If you want to read it, uh, read one a day. You know, if you pick a month of 31 days, you got to move. <laughs> February, you're going to have to make a couple of them up. Just read one a day and think about the contrast between wisdom and foolishness. But let's say we collected all the verses on speech. I've done this with several topics. So speech. What do we learn about speech? Number one is a wise person uses his speech in an appropriate and godly manner. That's what we learn. In contrast, a fool hurts people with their speech. Okay? Is that... Is that surprising to you? No, it's not surprising. But then the question becomes, how do we take it from being academic and make it a part of our lives? How do we integrate that into our lives? Don't grumble and complain. Talk. Just talk. When you're with people, just ask the question, how do I love them the way they are? I ask that question. I've probably asked it a million times in 25 years where I'm sitting with somebody that's telling me a terrible story. They're acting like an idiot. Maybe they've done, you know, off the deep end in sin. I stop and inside, I ask myself the question. This is one of the questions. I have two or three. But one of them is, how do I love this person just the way they are right now without asking them to change or be different? Let the Lord take care of that part. How do I love them so that I can be an encourager? What does that look like? So somebody comes to me and says, um, we're filing for divorce tomorrow. Okay, the standard Christian answer is, you know that's wrong, you shouldn't do that. I pause, and I say, okay, now I do this to buy myself time. Okay, tell me the story. That way it buys me time, so I can kind of get over my own emotions. So they they start telling me the story of how bad life is and how terrible their spouse is, and if I was with their spouse, they'd tell me how bad they were and how bad. And so I just ask myself the question, how do I love them just the way they are without asking them to be different? So as they get done, I just say, how can I help you? What do you need? That's a lot more loving than say, you know, it's wrong. Well, I know it's wrong. <laughs> I don't have to tell them that. I, lo- I live for the day when I say, you know, it's wrong to get divorced. What? Really? <laughs> it's not going to happen. So just pause and ask yourself this question. So a fool hurts people with their words. It creates damage and destruction. But a wise person creates safety and favor. Second principle is that um, the person who uses their speech in a righteous manner encourages. They bring about encouragement. That's the natural result. Safety rather than more pain. Um, A third one, the one who uses their speech in a righteous manner receives a blessing from God. That's what we learn from the Proverbs. They receive a blessing from God rather than more trouble. So if you are a gracious person with your speech, 
you see God interacting with you in unique ways. We learn that from the Proverbs by grouping these things together. Principle number four, the one who uses their speech in a righteous manner is trustworthy. They show discretion. Use your speech in a foolish way, you don't get my trust. And that's what the Proverbs teaches us. And you go through there and you see all this language being presented. So you can come to the conclusion based on all these verses in Proverbs about our language is that the Lord takes very, very seriously the words that come out of our mouth. I mean, that's what we talked about in Inon this morning. What comes out of a person, right? Jesus brought that up. In addition, the very words uttered by a person seem to be a gateway into their thinking, their commitments, and their convictions. Who's more important to you, a person or truth? And how do you balance that? So the words that you say reveal something about you. Uh, You can't help it. That's what Christ said. What comes out of you says tells the truth about you. And so I'm in a position to hear constant words coming out of people. And so now I'm in this position to do something about it. I read it and I, I listen to it and I say, wow, you're, not, you're really not very mature. Wow, you're really not committed to the Lord. You're really committed to your own selfishness. Do I say that out loud? No, because that's not encouraging. But it gives me insight into what's going on with them and how to, how to love them in return and how to give them a, a, a better way to think about it. Um, the words uttered, um, it's by words that our wisdom or our foolishness is made public. You reveal yourself by your words. Be very careful. Even a foolish man, if he is quiet, appears as wise. It's a proverb. <laughs> yeah. Open your mouth and you prove yourself to be true, right? <laughs> so that's just one example. And again, I, I could take you through all the proverbs, but... Someday you want to do it, just read the Proverbs and start categorizing them and put them together and see what you learn. It's really fun to do the one on laziness. That's a wonderful set of, of responsibility and laziness. Put those together and see what you learn about people. So there's a little bit on Proverbs. All right, let me pray for you. I'll go home. Father, thanks for your, uh, again for your word. Thanks for giving us wisdom, Lord, and insight into how to draw nearer to you and to love you better. And Lord, I do pray that you would continue to help your church to be known as a church that is safe, that we're not afraid to confront sin, that's not it, but that we're a safe place and we are really committed to redemption and helping people find their way because uh, we have the words of life and how to use those well. Thank you. In the Son's name we pray, amen.